1: Bibles, if you would, join with me in Galatians, as we are now going to finish chapter 4 of Galatians and also crack open the first verse of chapter 5. As we've discovered in the last week's passage, Paul is perplexed by the actions of the churches of Galatia. He doesn't understand why they started out so strong, only to be seduced by the demands of the Judaizers to return to observing the Mosaic Law order to become children of God. And as we have learned, no one, neither Jew nor Gentile, is commanded to live under the Mosaic law as we are now living in the days of promise of Abraham being fulfilled. For Christ is the one, the offspring that brings salvation and held the promises from Abraham. And all those that put their trust in the finished work of Christ belong to the family of God, whether Jew or Gentile. Previously, as we've been looking at this argument of how one is made right with God or how one becomes a child of Abraham, inherits the blessings and becomes a child of God, Paul has argued from the salvation history as he tried to say, well, here's what salvation, this is how God has been working it until now. He's used logic and reason. He even last week, as we saw, he used a personal plea based on their relationship. And then today, he's going to argue and end his argument using the Old Testament story of Hagar and Ishmael. So, Father, just I pray, help us not to be so distracted this morning that we could not hear your word. Let us hear it. Let us respond. Let us receive it. I pray that you would just hold everyone here, Lord, that we do not have many distractions. Lord, just keep our attentions based on this. May we listen with fresh ears and a desiring to hear your word. Lord, I pray that you give us discernment to know and tell the difference between your word and what my opinion and man's opinion may be. But Lord, we seek to glorify you. So I pray that the work will be done, that you begin such this week. In your name we pray. Amen. This passage can be divided into five parts. The opening, a historical and allegorical argument, and then a personal and a closing challenge. I want to take a look real quickly at the way that Paul is going to do this. How many of you have ever heard of what many people would call a great contradiction in the book of Proverbs? If you were to open your Bibles, you would see Proverbs chapter 26, 4-5, through five, and this has caused many people to say, what in the world is he trying to say? And let's look at verse 4 there as it comes up when it says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. What is that verse saying? Very simply, it's saying, don't talk like a fool. Just because someone comes to your argument doesn't mean you have to take it up. And sometimes there is a place in our lives where we just need to let sleeping dogs lie and just not engage. Have you ever had any of those times in your life where you just need to disengage from someone because they're just a clown? And it's like, you know, you're not getting anywhere with this person but look at verse 5 verse 5 though comes to say answer a fool according to his folly lest he be wise in his own eyes and I think this is probably the uh, the first verse is the mantra of all married men whereas verse 5 is the mantra of all married women men go to the place and do not answer their wives whereas a wife will look at the foolishness of her husband and then answer him in the same foolish way as he's thinking. And that's what Paul is going to do here, is there comes a time where you need to take up the argument of a fool to show himself his own foolishness, lest he think that he's actually wise. And that's what we're going to look at, as Paul is going to take an argument and answer a fool according to his own folly, which brings us then to the first part of the opening in verse 21. Look at it with me. Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. Paul writes, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you listen to the law? Paul is pointing out here the irony of their desire to live by the Mosaic law when in essence, or by asking, hey, do you even understand your own desires? Do you even know what it means to go back to observing the law of Moses." In other words, they must be looking at it more as a type of romantic endeavor. You know, we find that, I remember back in the uh, late 90s, early 2000, turn of the century, we're going back and we call the, what was called the emerging church at the time, the emergence, what they wanted to do is they wanted to go away from all types of modern or postmodern type um, devices in church and they wanted to go back and start doing the ancient practices of the church. Of course, to them, the ancient practices was medieval, not necessarily going back to the primitive, but they wanted to bring in labyrinths and and all sorts of ways of using your senses and, and getting away from churches altogether. Let us sit around on rocks and put on Gregorian chants. And that was their way of saying, let's go back. But many times people do that and they don't even understand what they're saying. And this is what's happening to them. St. Paul saying, do you even understand what you even desire? You have some romantic notion of what the Mosaic Law was. What they needed to understand is that would it be a fatal mistake for them to go back to observe the Mosaic Law? For those who live, as he's been telling us, under the Mosaic Law are actually in bondage to sin. Yes, even the Jews themselves who considered themselves free were in reality held to bondage to sin, and were going to face death themselves. Thomas Schreiner writes that those who place themselves under the law are also subjecting themselves to the power of sin and are living in the old era of redemptive history. In other words, he's saying, why do you want to turn back the clock? He goes on to write that freedom has only come about with the proclamation of the gospel. And they have received that with gladness. But then with eyes looking backward, they look back and with nostalgia and looking at the the Judaizers and the Jewish Christians and saying, boy, I want what they have. We find people doing that today, looking back and saying, look at all the Jewish practices. Maybe we ought to be doing some of the same things. Maybe we ought to be observing the Sabbaths and observing the months. and, And maybe we ought to take up their diet. And maybe we need to take up their types of cleansings and washings and such What Paul is saying is, wait a second, you don't understand. Those things have passed. When Jesus said, I come to fulfill the law, he's saying that it's no longer necessary. Paul is saying you don't even understand what you desire. And then that leads us to the part two, as he's going to share some historical facts that he wants them to understand about the Mosaic Law. In verse 22, he says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. So what Paul is going to do here is he's going to back to the Galatians and even the Judaizers, and he's going to tell them a story that they would know very well. And it was a story in which, in many cases, as we see, the Jews took great pride in this story, for in them it set themselves apart from others. I want to give you real quickly some chain of events, just so you can kind of understand what's going here when Paul is giving them an historical, when we talk about the son of promise and the son of a slave, when we talk about Hagar and Sarah, when we talk about Ishmael and Isaac, You may recall from our study in Genesis 15 during this summer that the promise that God promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. When he said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless. The heir of my house, Abraham says, is a servant. And he said, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man shall not be your heir. Your own very son shall be your heir. God promises Abraham that he'll be the father of many nations, when yet he had no children and hadn't had them even in his old age. The second thing we saw in Genesis 16, as we continue in that narrative, you may be reminded of this, is that Sarah then convinces Abraham to have children through Hagar. Which says, now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She grew tired of waiting for the promise of God. She had a female servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abraham, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. As you see, once again, she blames God. And in that is true, God had prevented her from this time of having children. So he says, Go to my servant. It may be that I shall chain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of his wife. And that decision by Abraham and Sarah to have a child through Hagar showed a lack of faith in the promises of God. And by the way, that lack of faith has created many of the problems or almost all the problems that we still see in the Middle East today. As once again, the child of Hagar and the child of Sarah are in combat and fighting and distrust and in hateful of each other. But then the third chain of event I'd like to share with you is in Genesis 17. As that narrative continues, we see that God once again, even in their faithlessness, even in their disobedience, God once again promises a son through Sarah. As he says for Sarai, he says, I'm now going to change your name. Instead of not only preventing her from having children, from not only now coming and saying, I'm going to now judge her and punish her, he says, no, I'm going to change her name. And I'm going to make her the mother of many. And then that wonderful news there? Instead of casting her out, God really embraces her and says, I'll strengthen you now. Even in your lack of faith, I'm still going to use you. We see that in Peter. We see that in Paul. And if you were to be bold enough and courage enough to stand, we could probably see that in your own life, in your own testimony. For he says, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Abraham says, Sarah laughs and says, how can that be? Again, Abraham says, oh, that Ishmael, the son of the slave, the son of Hagar, could you not accept him? Can he not live before you as my heir? Once again, accept this child of our own making. But God said, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish a covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Which leads us then to the rejoicing found in Genesis chapter 21 when Sarah gives birth to Isaac. One of the greatest words, The Lord visited Sarah as he said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised i pray today if we were not to get anything more than than what i'm going to give you today that you would capture that that the lord god does as he promised and as you read scripture find those promises that are to us as his children generally and to those that can be specific and grab and hold on to those even in our faithlessness god does as he's promised And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, Isaac. The point that Paul is making here in verse 22 is that Abraham had two sons. Ishmael, who was born a slave and continued as a slave, and Isaac, who was born free. Ishmael was born of the flesh, which meant that he was the product of self-reliance on the part of Abraham and Sarah while Isaac was the product of the Spirit of God on the part of God's promise. The key to understanding this passage is to remember that all Jews would would take immense pride and self-justification in considering themselves as children of Isaac, while considering all others as children of Ishmael. The Jews believed that only they were children of God, and recipients of the promises and the inheritance. And it was only through them and by observing the law that you could become a child of Abraham. But Paul is about to blow those perceptions into smithereens as he then goes on in verse 24 and part three as he gives an allegory. Join with me in verse 24, I should say. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically, You who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the ones of those who has a husband. Verse 28: Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. I want to give you a word of caution. What Paul is about to do here is not descriptive of how you and I should read and interpret Scripture. Paul is reverting here to a practice of the Jewish teachers and rabbis of allegorizing Scripture to teach an important truth. Though this was a popular method of interpretation, not only in Jewish teachings, but also during the early years of Christianity up until the 1500s, it is not an appropriate way to handle Scripture. Many errors and wild speculations have come from this type of interpretations. The Bible instructs us to rightly handle the word of truth in Timothy. So here Paul here is answering a fool according to his folly as he adopts their position and begins to allegorize. And Paul is going to use the saga of Hagar and Sarah to point out the futility of the Judaizers' teachers of observing the Mosaic law in order to be right with God. Now what's interesting here is John MacArthur, in speaking on this passage, makes some observations concerning Paul contrasts of these. If you look at Hagar, and it says Hagar is, or Hagar represents, Hagar corresponds. And again, he's making an allegory. Now, Paul does this with permission, again, by the Holy Spirit. This is not how we're to interpret, but he takes some liberties here through the Holy Spirit to point out the folly of their thoughts. Paul says you have to remember Hagar. Hagar is or represents to Ishmael. Ishmael represents to the Sinai covenant. The Sinai covenant, as you might recall, is the Mosaic covenant. He says that corresponds then to the earthly Jerusalem, which is fleshly, which is the law which leads to bondage. And as you go from top to bottom, he is not giving us very positive aspects of how he's pointing to Hagar. And then what he's saying is even Jerusalem itself is not the child of promise but if you go to sarah he makes a different contrast and in these you see the positive aspects of the allegory he says sarah had a son named isaac and he was the fulfillment of the abraham and new covenant he relates to the heavenly jerusalem where god is making a place for his children and that is a promise that god has given and it's only by faith that you can apply it to your life and that through faith Gives us freedom. Paul is making some bold statements with these contrasts as we read. To be a child of Hagar is to be in bondage, while to be a child of Sarah is to be free. At this point, the Jewish teachers would agree, except Paul throws in a wrench by stating that in reality, even those that can trace their heritage to both Abraham and Sarah while observing the Mosaic law are actually in bondage. This would have awestruck them. This would have given them that open jaw look. This would have been a rise in anger for them as he points this out. The spiritual truth that Paul has been emphasizing in these arguments in chapter 3 and 4 that we've been reading is his defense of the gospel and that salvation is by grace through faith and not of works. It's not through the Mosaic law. It's not through being a child of Abraham. It's not through being a citizen of Jerusalem and observing the law. But let me say this, the law, though it is given by God and is good and is pure, it is all those things. But the law, even though it's all those things, imparts no power to keep it. And it does not grant eternal life and we've laid this groundwork out for you over the last few weeks paul had written to the corinthians that the law kills instead of making one alive in essence paul is saying that the jews are enslaved by the law and they're not free from the bondage of sin and death john macarthur had written that the mosaic law leads to bondage because it depended on the flesh and you say well how did it depend on the flesh Because all the observing of the law was, was do this, do this, do this, do this. Thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt nots, thou shalt nots. Whereas the promise was God saying, I will, I will, I will. So the Mosaic law was self-reliance and doing work. But yet we know that it never imparted any righteousness for it had to continue on and on and on. But Christ fulfilled the law. and You and I no longer have to be self-reliant on our good works. We no longer have to continue to try to make ourselves right with God. Aren't you glad for that? And how exhausting would it be to try to always be right and be the perfect child? That's what the Bible says must be perfect, even as my Father is perfect. We can go even through the hall of faith there found in Hebrews. And even as we see these men and women that are held up as great men and women of faith, we also see that they were flawed and that they were not always perfect in men and women of faith. The Mosaic law had no power to accomplish what it asked of people. Paul makes a reference in Isaiah 66 when he writes that Jerusalem on high is the mother of all believers, speaking of the heavenly Jerusalem, Jerusalem that's spoken of in Revelation, that will one day that city will come down. It's a place where Christ will dwell, and the nations will come and bring their goods and services to worship the Almighty God. And then he quotes Isaiah 54, 1. To make the point that the heavenly Jerusalem, through the power of the Holy Spirit, will supernaturally produce more children of God than the earthly Jerusalem will through natural birth. That's the great promise of God. Again, Thomas Schreiner writes that the law did not produce genuine children of Abraham. For all of Israel is not believing Israel, Paul tells us in Romans. But the children of God are the fruit of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus teaches in John chapter 3. So when he gave them the promise that their descendants would be as the sand, he's speaking of a supernatural fruits of the Holy Spirit. His point is that that passing in Isaiah was a promise by God to return the exiles of Israel back to Jerusalem. When he says, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. That speaking of Israel in exile, their life it seemed was over. They, they didn't seem to have any joy. They were held captive for over 70 years. And God had promised them, One day you will return. God had likened the exile of Israel to Babylon. It was to a woman abandoned by her husband. But now that exile says that exile has now ended with the gospel proclamation. The exile did not end necessarily when they, when they personally came back from Babylon and redid the Jerusalem and Nehemiah and Esther and Ezra. What he's saying no is that it's come to be now that the gospel proclamation has happened. Just as Isaac was the fulfillment of the promise of God, so is the gospel the fulfillment of the return of the exile as the conversion of the Gentiles is the fulfillment of the gospel. And in verse 28, Paul now applies that allegory to the Galatians, as they and not the Jews are the true sons of Isaac, as they have become children by the Holy Spirit and not by the flesh, which leads us then to part four, which is the personal plea, the personal application. In verse 29, as he goes to the allegory and he sets it up, again, Ishmael, you are sons in bondage. That refers to all those who obey the law. But he goes, But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also is now. And he's referring back to that passage where when Isaac was about three years of old, three years of age, during his birthday party, during his Weaning time was over. Isaac at about, or Ishmael at about 17, began to mock and criticize and bully the little baby Isaac. Sarah, seeing that, realized, you know what? I can't have this Ishmael guy around no longer. He cannot inherit with my son. He's a danger. And she cast him and Hagar out. In the same way, him who was born according to the Spirit, he says, so also it is now. In verse 30, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And that's the kicker. In verse 29, is that the Judaizers are likened to Ishmael and his persecution of Isaac, as they have been persecuting Christians for not observing the law of Moses. Just as Paul warned the Galatians earlier that any who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ or preach a gospel contrary to the one that we preached to you, let him be what? Anyone remember? Accursed. Paul now says that they are to cast out those that continue to pressure them to observe the law in order to be made right with God. As Paul brings the allegory to end by stating that the Judaizers are actually not children of Isaac, but are children of Ishmael. They were outside the covenant of God, and they will not inherit the blessings of Abraham and become children of God. As Paul answers a fool according to his folly, and he exposed their real position before God. For those who try to make themselves with, right with God on their own self-reliance, on justifying themselves of trying to work their way, it is ended. It ends in death. There's no freedom. Which leads us to verse chapter 5. And the fifth part, which is his closing challenge. As he says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. What Paul argues against is going back to the Mosaic law and commands that the Galatians to stand firm and resist those pressures to submit to circumcision and observing the law. Paul is simply teaching that they can either rely on human strength and self, which is works, and you and I know that no one is saved by works, or they could rely on God's strength and God himself, which is the promise of God. Peter had asked the church of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, where he says, Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Peter understood this even then. As Paul did here, it is no good to give them that yoke. We ourselves could not bear it. It was a yoke. It was a a bondage. It was a burden to carry. He understood that there's no freedom in law. But freedom is only found in the grace of God through faith. I want to challenge you. There are many people today that are still trying to make themselves right with God through the flesh. Some of you might be even fighting this this week where you believe that, oh, I have to be at church or I have to read my Bible or I have to pray, I have to give, I have to do this or God will be angry with me. I've got to make myself right with God. And let me tell you, that's a fool's errand. And you will not find any joy. You will not find any justification in that type of thinking. That's going back in salvation history. God has called us to remember that we are free, that Christ has made us right with God. Should we do those things? Yes. But they move from serving in bondage to be motivated by love. Reading God's word and praying and coming to church is not a duty that we ought to bear, but it ought to be a joy as we realize. That's the difference between looking at the law and looking at the gospel. For the Judaizers, they were wanting the Galatians to revert back to the law. Paul said, no, it's the gospel. You've got to understand, it's the gospel that motivates me to continue when things are tough. It's the gospel that helps me when I'm too weak. It's the gospel that helps me fight sin when it becomes overbearing. It's the gospel that gives me life. It's the gospel that gives me hope. Why? Because Christ has done all that was needed to make us right before God. And in the gospel we have the promise is that one day God will deliver us from all things. He says that He'll come for us and we will join Him in that new heavenly Jerusalem. Let us find strength in that. Let us keep our eyes on the gospel. I'd like to end, if I could, with the application of the practical living. And this is what I've been doing is the to know, to do, and to be. What you need to know today is that freedom in Christ results in liberation from sin and self-reliance. It's only through the gospel do we find ourselves free from sin, free to choose a different route, free from, from having to be in bondage to self-reliance and using works to make sure that God is pleased with us. But freedom in Christ results in liberation. So many of us are walking around like we still have a burden. We're like Christian before he released it at Calvary, carrying this big ball and wondering why it's so heavy. We need to realize the liberation that comes from the cross. John Piper writes that full freedom consists of the opportunity, which is the freedom to do what we can. Ability, which is the freedom to do what we desire. And the desire, which is the freedom to do what brings us joy. If I can liken it, I'll try my own analogy. I won't do an allegory, but I'll try my own analogy. It's like going to Hawaii. Who wants to go to Hawaii? But do I have the freedom to go to Hawaii? Well, first I have to say, well, freedom to go to Hawaii is an opportunity. Do I have the time off? Do I have the money? Is there the opportunity to do it until I have that? If I'm in San Quentin, there's no opportunity to do so, is there? If I don't have a job or if I don't have money to buy the ticket or someone to buy it for me, if I don't have the opportunity, I'm not really free to visit, am I? But once I have the opportunity, I need the ability I need the freedom to do what we desire. So do I have the ability? And then we may say, do we have the ability, to things that we need to make ourselves go? But then we may say, "Why well, now I have the ability. I have the ticket. I bought the ticket. There's a plane. It can get me over there. I've put all my ducks in a row. I've been able to get the time. I now have opportunity. I now have the ability. The only thing that's missing from that freedom of going to Hawaii is the desire. But if I look and say, wow, man, I'd love to go to Hawaii, but you know what? I don't like to fly. I don't want to fly over, what, six hours worth of water? I've seen Lost. I've seen all those other types of things. I'm not about to do that. And all of a sudden, I find my desire wanes. That's what it is to mean freedom. See, I don't have freedom to go because my desire is, is shortened by my fears, and I allow that fear to overwhelm those desires. Bring that to the same pain. What I'm trying to get is that we have freedom in Christ. And there's so many of us that we have not understood that we have the opportunity now to live without sin. We have the ability to say no to sin, but many times it's our desire. We have no desire to stop fighting sin. We've looked at that and gone through that in Sunday school in Romans 6 and 7. And so I'd ask you, have you been living out that freedom? The opportunity, the ability, and the desire. We now have the freedom in Christ. It results in our liberation from sin and self-reliance. But what's missing is you living out that freedom. What are you and I to do? Here's what I want to tell you to do. Just do what Paul tells you to do. I can't tell you anything of my own opinion. Just do what he says. Stand firm. Stand firm in the promise of God. Sarah and Abraham didn't do that, did they? But we need to stand firm and resist the pressure to serve in the flesh. By God's grace, that did not keep them from God's promise. But many times, not standing firm and resisting that pressure, we do not experience God's best for us now. We want to understand that freedom gives us what God has graciously given us. But We need to stand firm. Liberty does cost something, does it not? Freedom is something that comes with a cost. So I'm telling you, stand firm, resist that pressure. Don't let anyone put you on that. Even if it's someone who says, well, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do this to be right before God. Go back to Scripture and see if it be so. The last thing you and I need to be is joyful. We need to enjoy the freedom that we have in Christ. As Paul said, the yoke, the Mosaic law was just a yoke. And we have so many Christians that are walking around like they're carrying a yoke. If you could just see a big mirror, if we could just put one right here, you could see the faces as you sing, I'm so glad that I'm saved. You know, I'm happy in Jesus. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. And we come out with those faces and those sour pusses, and, and it's like we're all carrying this big, giant weight not to be sold. The joy of the life is joyful. He says, I've come to give you life, life abundant. Find joy in your freedom. If you're not experiencing joy, then I believe that you may be not resisting self-reliance and the pressure to earn your own happiness. Just be joyful. I'd like to give you one final word of encouragement. It's found in John chapter 8. And Jesus speaking says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. and You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him and said, We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. Answer a fool according to his folly, right? How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin the slave does not remain in the house forever but the son remains forever that's the story of Ishmael and Isaac but I love this so if the son sets you free you will be free indeed would you live that out Galatians needed to do so and we understand that Paul had to rip them apart to do so may we understand his word and apply it today Father, thank you for your goodness. Let us grasp the truth that's found here in Galatians. Lord, there's so many Christians that are living their life in drudgery. Father, we question what is going on. But Lord, many times like we are like the Galatians. We we revert back to the flesh. We revert back to self-reliance. Father, we like Abraham and Sarah, we take our eyes off the promise. And we lose our liberty. Give us the strength to stand firm. Let us hold on to the gospel. And Father, may your Holy Spirit give us that fruit of joy that it may just bound abundantly out of our life. We pray this in the name of your son. And God's people join with me in saying, Amen. Amen.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith Podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkininfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing your review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.